Mama, I'm hurting in the worst way. I got no money in my pocket, no place to stay. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody into another edition of Campfire Conversations. Today, we are talking waterfowl with Ducks Unlimited scientist, our old pal Mike Brazier. Uh, if your waterfowl season was as shitty as mine, well, then it was one for the books for all the wrong reasons. Uh, the Ducks just really never played ball. Uh, after opening weekend, it was abysmal, to say the least. Uh, got on some good hunts outside of the North Texas area, but uh, when you're celebrating a three-duck haul between three dudes on the last day of the season and basically ecstatic that that was your best hunt in two months, you know something's wrong. Uh, why that is, is another question. Obviously, it was a warm winter, but there have got to be other factors that play into why the Ducks just never ended up here at the uh, tail end of the Central Flyway. A lot of folks in the Mississippi Flyway experienced the exact same scenario. Uh, so hopefully Mike can shed some insight into that conundrum that many of us Southern waterfowlers faced uh, this past season. Because I tell you what, as much as I love watching the sun come up, Bell and I got pretty bored in the 2020-2021 uh, waterfowl season. So with that being said, uh, let's have Mike pull up a seat around the old campfire here and get down to business. Mike, it's great to have you back on the show, man. Yeah, it's good to be here, Cable. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been probably a couple years, I think, since our last conversation. I don't really remember, to be honest with you, what we even spoke about. I'm sure it had to do with ducks and duck hunts, but uh, <laughs> it probably topic, did. Yeah, the topic escapes me. However, uh, so where are you uh, jumping on from today? Memphis, our national headquarters here in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, for 13 years from, I guess it would have been 2005 to 2018, I was uh, working out of Lafayette, Louisiana as a, uh, for the Gulf Coast Joint Venture. Uh -huh. But uh, I guess a couple of years ago, I moved here to Memphis as a waterfowl scientist within our national headquarters. So I report directly to our chief scientist for the long, well, for a number of years, that was Dr. Tom Mormon. He retired at the end of last year and now Dr. Steve Adair is our chief scientist. Okay. Yeah, I had sent Tom an, uh, an email about this uh, conversation, and we've spoken frequently over the last couple of years, and he was like, well, Cable, I, I retired. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but but uh, it's great to, to visit with you. It looks like sure. you're actually in the office. We are. We're starting to repopulate our office here in Memphis for the longest time. We had, well, we were at greatly reduced capacity, um, you know, 10 20%, something of that nature. We're probably up to about, I don't know, 40% capacity in here right now. Okay. Um, you know, still being cautious with, um, with our interactions and kind of following appropriate guidelines, that type of stuff. But mm -hmm. it feels good to get back in the office and start to see people in the hallways and things of that nature. So we're, yeah. we're getting there. <laughs> well, so I think uh, kind of along that 40% vein, I mean, that's like uh, the Ducks basically took the year off from coming to Texas because of COVID too. Like, they, I don't know what happened, man. They weren't here, but a lot of people wanted me to, to visit with um, a, uh, a DU scientist to figure out, uh, you know, what 
what actually happened. Uh, you know, and, and I think it sounds so cliche, but if we get the cold weather, the ducks generally show up. This year, I'm sitting in the blind more often than not in nylon breathable waders. I never even broke the neoprene ones out. And some days it's like you're swatting mosquitoes away and it's you're, you're sweating, picking up decoys. Uh, so it was a, a very mild winter as far as uh, this far south is concerned. And I did hear reports from guys on the coast that were banging away on redheads and pintails. But by and large, like North Texas, just it, it's like it got skipped over. And uh, we, we limited out opening day, saw a lot of ducks. And after that, um, it was it was pretty abysmal. Worst duck season myself and, and the people I hunt with people that I talk to have ever had. Yeah. Wow. So I don't know if you could shed any light on, on maybe if there's some migration patterns that have been altered through I don't, agricultural practices, or um, I've heard over the years that maybe ducks are using more like um, farm ponds than big reservoirs and, and, and not going all the way to the coast in some cases, but uh, you obviously know more about it than I do. So um uh, Pick your brain on that. Sure. I think any of the suggestions that you came up with there, any of the hypotheses, as we would kind of call them, are probably in play at some level in some years. That's the that's the unsatisfying thing about any like, of these. Here's your loaded gun. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the unsatisfying thing about this conversation. Anytime you have it, it's because – and. Our human human nature is to say, what's the one thing? What's sure. the one thing that's causing this observation that I'm making, that I'm seeing? In nature, there is never a single factor. Uh, now, there are factors that are more important than others, and that's the way that we try to approach this is to, to tease out all those different factors that are responsible for waterfowl movements, abundance, the timing of those things. Uh, but obviously, when you're dealing with a migratory resource, that becomes incredibly complex. I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago um, with Dr. Mike Chamberlain. He is a mm -hmm. turkey biologist at the University of Georgia. He yeah, and I just over talked to him last week, actually. Did you really? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so he and I overlapped for a few years at Mississippi State. And, and it was funny because I was hearing, I was listening to that podcast and he was talking about kind of this same thing people want to know what's the explanation for a decline in turkey populations that we're, that we're seeing and he's like you know we we always want that one answer but there uh -huh. is no there is no one answer it's a multitude of factors so what what i can do cable and i don't know if you saw this i don't know how well we've circulated it yet but one of the things that we did this past year uh, was pulled together something that we're calling a season in review and I can provide you a link to it and you can uh, attach it to the podcast or, or whatever website you have but we kind of take a stepwise approach of looking at pulling data from the from various websites on weather and um, and other indices of habitat condition and even midwinter survey data and summarize that in um you know, a nice little publication that we can share with people to say of those factors that we can that we know from past science that that has an influence on the timing of waterfowl migrations and abundances. This is what they looked like throughout the autumn and winter of last year. And so it includes things such as precipitation. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, precip departures from average is kind of one way to look at it. Um, 
uh, precipitation, temperatures, stream flows, um, snow cover, uh, Great Lakes ice ice cover as sort of an index of the, how cold it was or how warm it was throughout most of the winter up in some of the northern latitudes and then midwinter survey data. There's nothing in this report that says, hey, this is what caused what it was that you were seeing, but it does, I think, shed some light on on really the way the season unfolded. And so with that, and to kind of get to your question, what I can what I can do is is say that we spoke with a lot of people on our Ducks Unlimited podcast last year to try to keep a, a handle on how the season was was unfolding in various locales and throughout most of the eastern US, the the, the responses that we received were I mean almost uh, wash rinse repeat almost the same thing in in late october we had an unusually cool uh few weeks there were a few weeks in late october when things got unusually cool uh and that that did what we expected it to do based on the way we understand waterfowl populations and their migrations it it led to an early push of birds too early for some for some people, I talked to some hunters in Missouri that said, boy, I wish this cold weather would have waited a couple of weeks because their season was closed. When Which it probably explain why we did well opening weekend. I th- almost, most definitely, most definitely. And that was one of the things that we've heard from some of our, our members and partners in, in Texas uh, is that, yeah, it was, it was good early on. That was, the other thing that we heard was it was one of the best teal seasons ever for many people. There's a couple of things that would be driving that. Uh, one of which would be just exceptional wetland conditions in the in the Dakotas, notably South Dakota. That's the other thing that we included in this report was a couple of figures that tried to kind of capture, because we didn't have the bee popper habitat data last year, but we just kind of pulled some precipitation data to show how how that might have might explain what we expected, what we heard about habitat conditions in the Dakotas, dry in the prairies uh, of Canada but the Dakotas were, were pretty good. And, and so we know that blue winged teal are going to stop at some of the first places that they find water. And that was in the Dakotas and they found a lot of it and they had really good production by all accounts that revealed itself. Uh, the, the rewards of that revealed itself to hunters in the form of a really good teal season by all accounts. Uh, then you get into the big duck season and you get the cold push in October. And I think that was, that was good for some of the early hunts. Now, the thing that hindered hunters in the Mississippi Flyway, certainly the southern end of the Mississippi Flyway, and again, here we're starting to layer on these different factors, mm-hmm. was it was it was dry. It was dry for a lot of those a lot of those historically important regions in Arkansas and Mississippi. Uh, and there's been some research out of Arkansas in the past few years that that show that. Uh, and Mississippi as well, that show one of the things that determines regional scale water or influences regional scale waterfowl abundance is the amount of habitat on the landscape. I mean, you can have a small section of really high quality waterfowl habitat. And yeah, if you got the birds there, you could support a lot of them for a long time. But waterfowl are making these decisions on where they go at different scales and space. And so these areas that have a lot of water on the landscape, especially if it's really good habitat uh, associated with that water. Those areas are going to have a, a lot of ducks. They're going to see a lot of, a lot of ducks. But 
the, the fact that a lot of those areas in Arkansas and Mississippi had low stream levels and low precipitation, they just did not have much habitat early in that in the hunting season last mm -hmm. year. It hurt them in that regard. Uh, the other thing that we can say about what was happening in the southern end of the Mississippi Flyway is, you know, Louisiana had one of its worst years on record in terms of, of hurricanes. And so that had some very noticeable mm. um, influences on the quality of, of their coastal marsh habitat. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's when, what went on in the early part of the season. Yeah. I had the opportunity to, uh, to go to Stuttgart for the first time uh, last, last December. So before COVID, right before the world lost its mind. And yeah. uh, the guy, he calls me a week before. He's like, man, we've seen like three ducks in like the last week. Yeah. And so I know they had a bad yeah. season in uh, 1920, and it sounds like they had another bad season in 2021. Yeah. Um, 19, now, you said 1920. Did you mean 2019? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 19 okay. and, and the 19, <laughs> oh, 19. 2019, okay. 2020. Okay. I don't know what the I thought you were going way back with me there. No. Okay. Uh, so it looks like they've had bad to back, uh, back to back yeah. poor seasons. And yeah. he was like, hey, it's, you know, it's for me, it was like a six, seven hour drive. And I was like, three ducks. And huh? I was like, I appreciate yeah. the invite. And I'd like to come to Stuttgart, obviously, uh, Greenhead capital yeah. of the world. But sure. Uh, he was like, it's not worth it. And, yeah. Uh, but. Uh, anyway, yeah. So, yeah, Arkansas had a tough season last year. They really did. That there's no secret to that. And a lot of that is going to be early. They were not a beneficiary of that early cold weather because they just did not have the habitat. Mm -hmm. Then, then we kind of look at what happened the rest of the season once they finally did get some water on the landscape. Well, for I'm going to look at some figures here for November, December, and January. We were at exceptionally mild uh, temperatures mm -hmm. north of us. If you look at the southern end of the flyway from these figures, you know, things were about average. And that was one of the things here in Tennessee that I was even noticing is that, you know, this feels kind of average. But if you looked in the Dakotas, uh, in Minnesota, in Nebraska, they were, let me look at this scale here, anywhere well, I, on, I saw on average of... up to 12, 15 degrees above average. Yeah. Well, and I saw lots of people in the Dakotas and uh, Great Lakes regions shooting ducks when you would have thought, you know, December, January, there's all their stuff should have been frozen up and those yeah, ducks should have been right here. I'm like, what? How are they still shooting ducks in the Dakotas? But, you know, yep. it's just like you said, 12 degrees is a big uh, oh, a lot. And that's an average, you know, and so that's one of the things that we really the, the waterfowl management community is wanting to get a better handle on on what part of of the temperature regime is most responsible for some of these changes that that we may be seeing in in some years and you know you can look at an average but does an average temperature over the course of a month really capture the aspect of weather temperature in this regard that's going to influence that it's going to influence duck movements you know and you start to think about things like well how long did it get below freezing those types of things and and then we what we're really curious about is what do the long-term weather trends tell us about that? And we've done some investigation of that. And yeah, it's when you get those cold spells, it's not staying cold as long. Mm -hmm. And if you're a duck, that's great. Ducks are perfectly built to withstand short 
even really cold um, bouts of uh, of inclement weather. I mean, they can they can do that. They can pack on a lot of fat, and if you're only getting three to four days of really cold temperature, a lot of these more cold hardy species like mallards and black ducks, they're gonna they're gonna tough it out. And so I figure I figure that's one of the things that we're that we're seeing. Uh, you look at you look at this ice cover, these ice cover figures, they're just shocking. They show the um, the the long-term average of ice cover on each of the Great Lakes and the estimate of the percent of ice cover on some of these lakes. Just go to Lake Erie, it's the shallowest of those lakes. By late January, there's usually about 40 to 50 percent ice cover on the Great Lake, on that, on that lake. Mm-hmm. This year, it was bouncing around below 10 percent. Wow. So, I mean, it was dramatic. And so from that type of weather pattern influences waterfowl from a couple of different ways. One is it's going to influence how those birds are distributed kind of north-south and even east-west throughout the flyway. But when you have a year where you don't get a lot of um, even, you know, short-term changes in temperature um, or or a significant rain events to put new habitat on the landscape. There's nothing happening to cause birds to do something different from what, from the pattern that they've developed, you know? So the few birds we had got stale real really quickly. That's right. Local birds and they were here and then they knew the routine. And once you started calling, they were like, ah, no, 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 thank you. Yeah. Uh, But like you said, they didn't have any incentive to go anywhere else. Yeah. That's right. It was the same for most of the season. That's right. And and when it's mild, they don't have as great a need to, um, to, to feed, you know, they're not physiologically, energetically stressed. Um, they get up and they search and they, they say, yeah, you know, it's same habitat that I've looked at for the past few days. I know what's there, but whenever it rains, even if it's 60 or 70 degrees, if you get rain that that causes some overbank flooding, you're going to get birds that start moving around. And if you're able to move and in, in, into those areas that are newly flooded, chances are you did okay, even in those circumstances. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so that explains a lot as far as the, the weather up north, I think, was the, a huge yeah. factor. Because we had a yeah. mild winter here, but that, you know, that was obviously reflected farther north. Um, I will say it gave me hope though when we had snowmageddon down here, which us yeah. Texans don't know how to deal with. But oh my god, I wish I was duck hunting. I, I mean, there were so many ducks. So yeah, it was nice to at least see that yep. when we got the cold weather, they did show up, albeit uh, in February. Yeah, um, yeah. You no, know, we had our longest. Uh, our our season started later than it ever had, and it ended later than it ever had um, in Texas. And and the flyways can adopt. Uh, the states can adopt their own. Uh, season dates based off of the the uh, management plan that's I guess put in uh, place by the flyway yeah uh, so we had and we had only had like a five-day split uh, which was the shortest because we had started later to end later so yeah. I had such high hopes and this was the first year that I ever had spent money on a duck lease specifically um, and I, uh, I was like god wish I had that $1,500 back <laughs> <laughs> yeah we went yeah. the last day of the season and we shot three ducks and that was like the best hunt we'd had in weeks. 
Yeah. So it was just, I'd never seen it and I hope I never see it again. Oh, well, God. I know. And you know, we, we mentioned Dr. Tom Mormon a bit earlier. This was one of his worst years ever. Also, I think, uh, heard uh, until like the last week of the season, I think he was, he shot only one duck all season. Now, I think the truth is it might've only been a, he might've only been able to claim half of that duck. He and, oh, wow. uh, he and his good buddy, Jerry Holden, our director of operations there in the Southern region. I think they both claimed about half of that duck. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there was no doubt it was a, it was a tough season. The other thing that that's important to kind of remember, uh, and we highlighted in this, in this report is that it all starts with the production that occurred the previous season. Mm. And yeah, while, while, while conditions were good in the Dakotas, they were not really good in Prairie Canada, and we don't have don't have data. Um, I guess we'll have age ratio data here at some point based off of some of the harvest surveys. But our assessment, kind of based on what we were hearing, is that production last year at best would have probably been average. Mm -hmm. So for for southern states productivity on an annual basis really becomes important, you know, for what you see from year to year. That's the other thing I'll say, Cable, that gets that gets a bit complex about these conversations is you, one part of the conversation is, well, what happened this year? And then the other part of the conversation is, well, what's happening to the trend over, over time? And those two, obviously, your individual year, years, you know, combined to to make up that long-term trend but those are in many respects the same factors are operating but there's a different time scale there and they those those conversations kind of take two different um they take on two different uh, i i guess um characters in some respects so okay um we've got about five minutes left i did want to ask you uh, speaking of long-term trends um and and it might have even been with uh dr mormon that we, we discussed this but changes in not so much the migration itself but the habitat that ducks are using mm -hmm. uh, is there anything to the idea that they are using smaller water bodies more frequently and are, are looking for more stock tanks farm ponds less um less dependent on reservoirs and certainly the coast yeah, so we're talking about Texas here, and I'm I'm reasonably familiar with that data, having worked out at the Gulf Coast Joint Venture for a number of years, uh, and and I know Texas has one of the best. I mean, it's only they fly the survey only once in January, but they cover the entire state, at least the areas that have waterfowl habitat, and it's a great it's a great data set for looking at what's happening in terms of waterfowl distributions or seeing how waterfowl distributions can change. I think mm -hmm. that's I think. I think sometimes we have to think about this from the way of just like we're observing what the birds are doing in response to the landscape that they have. And there are numerous factors that influence that landscape and humans are right at the center of every aspect of it. Right. Um, you know, the weather, of course, we don't want to get into that, that argument, uh, that, that kind of discussion, but, um, but in terms of, you know, the, the landscape itself, humans are at the center of, of, of that and what it looks like and waterfowl respond to that. And so the data from those surveys clearly show an increase and, and harvest, harvest survey data show this as well, an increase in the number of waterfowl harvested out of that Oaks and Prairies region where you've got all of those stock tanks and all of those ponds. And, and I don't, you know, ducks are going to 
select habitats that that give them the best chance to satisfy their resource needs while not getting shot. They don't want to get shot. Uh, they what they want to do is survive and get back to the breeding grounds every single year, just like every bird tries to do. Doesn't matter if it's a duck or a passerine. They're trying to survive and get back so they can produce that next generation. And so, if those stock tanks, when they come on the landscape, um, if they provide security from disturbance, if they provide access to some food resources, we should absolutely expect ducks to to use those. And and I think there's a couple of data streams that I'm familiar with that show, yeah, that's that's happening, and that's not a surprise, uh, especially when you layer in what we know about warming temperatures and you know milder winter temperatures, and that kind of influencing how far they may feel the need to go south. So you've actually got a couple of things there that may be influencing their decision to continue south. One is the availability of this habitat up in the oaks and prairies um, and the rolling plains. And then the other would be warmer temperatures that just allow them to hang out at more northern latitudes with less energetic stress than they historically did. Okay, so interesting stuff there. Um, and maybe not necessarily even a bad thing. Uh, just we as hunters have to adapt. Uh, oh, absolutely. Can't, can't control the weather, but you can find ducks. Uh, you just continue yeah. to look in, in different places. Okay, well, I think that's the number one message that we as a waterfowl management community have to do a better job of is is communicating what it is we're understanding about waterfowl migration and movements and how they respond to the landscape and then encouraging hunters to themselves figure out how to adapt to those changes it's we should never expect waterfowl populations or any migratory bird population to get in a long-term stable pattern that's just not the way they operate mm -hmm. that's what has allowed them to persist for thousands of years their ability to adapt to an ever-changing landscape we have to to do a better job encouraging our our supporters, our hunters, our members to learn to adapt in response to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, Mike, I certainly appreciate it. Real quick, if you want to plug the uh, the DU podcast, where can folks consume that? Sure. Uh, we are starting season four of the Ducks Unlimited podcast. You can get that at any of the, through any of the apps where you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google. Um, I think you can go to ducks.org slash podcast or just, okay. just Google Ducks Unlimited podcast and you'll find it. We just started season four here at the first of May. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly enjoying it and uh, have enjoyed the uh, conversation today. Thanks for coming on and uh, shedding some light on on what was a terrible season for a lot of us but hopefully you know there's always next year yeah well that's right we are we are we are we are eternal optimists we know that if there's one thing we know the ducks will come they will they will head south again next year yeah. where they go in what abundance that remains to be seen yes sir well thanks thank again, you Mike. you bet thank you cable anytime man all right, there he goes, Ducks Unlimited scientist Mike Brazier joining us here on Campfire Conversations. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Cable Smith. You guys have a great week in the outdoors. And I don't want to hit the good side of this goodbye. If you want to go, baby, just leave. Don't tell me that you still care and that I'll always be. Special Cause his words don't mean a damn thing